This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 116. Today we welcome Danny Hyde to speak about his new book, Welcome to a Reformed Church. Christ the Center is listener-supported, and we thank everyone who helps to make this program possible. To read more about how you can contribute, please visit reformedforum.org slash donate. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed theology. My name is Camden Busey, and this is episode number 116. I'm very pleased to have with me today Nicholas T. Batzig, who is a church planter just outside Savannah, Georgia, in Richmond Hill. It's great to have you on, Nick. Good to be on, Camden. Again. <laughs> we had to have a restart here for certain reasons, so uh, we're pretending like we just got online. <laughs> but we're very pleased to have the patient Danny Hyde with us, who is pastor of Oceanside United Reformed Church. It's great to have you on, Danny. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, today we are going to be speaking about a new book from Reformation Trust entitled Welcome to a Reformed Church. Uh, that is a new book that Danny has written, and uh, it's going to be very useful for many of our listeners, something that we can pass on to many of our family members and uh, first-time attenders in the church. But before we get started, do we have anything we'd like to mention? Any news, Nick? I'll just real quick mention um, William Wright's Martin Luther's Understanding of God's Two Kingdoms. I think that'll be a really helpful book um, for those who are wanting to know more about two kingdoms theology and specifically the historical um, undergirding of, uh, you know, a specific view of two kingdoms theology in the writings of Martin Luther. Um, Wright looks like he does a really good job to show how Luther um, uh, keeps the two kingdoms of politics and church, state and church separate, and yet shows that God's word um, in the views of Luther had, um, uh, God's word was the rule for both of those kingdoms in different ways. So want to encourage our um, listeners to get a copy of William Wright's scholarly treatment, Martin Luther's understanding of God's two kingdoms. I also want to mention real quick that um, that the PCRT is coming up April 16th through 18th in Greenville, South Carolina at Second Presbyterian Church. And I will be there hopefully covering that, um, blogging, maybe getting some interviews. Um, and you had mentioned something about Ligonier. Yeah, I just saw a Twitter from the Ligonier account a little earlier today that uh, early bird registration for, I believe it was the National Conference, is now open. That won't be open forever. So if you uh, are planning on going or thinking about it, why don't you take a look at their website and you can find out the different rates because those rates will change uh, as soon as early bird registration closes. Also, we need to mention again the Philadelphia Conference of Reformed Theology, uh, PCRT. Uh, that's coming up. Is uh, the Greenville one this weekend? Um, it is April 16th through 18th, so it's it's not... Um, okay, it'll be a week after this after airs. Easter, but the next, the next weekend. And uh, also... Um, the Philadelphia one uh, is coming up as well, and we're hopefully going to cover both of those. We're not going to be able to cover the entire Philadelphia uh, instance, uh, but uh, keep your eyes open if you're attending, uh, and uh, look for us, and we'd love to talk to you and chat and see what's going on. Uh, do we have anything else we need to mention before we start into our book discussion? No, that's all for me. Well, we've got this new book from Reformation Trust, uh, written by Danny Hyde. Welcome to a Reformed Church, a Guide for Pilgrims. And this is going to be a, real, a really fun discussion. Danny, I, 
I, for a long time, was not going to a Reformed church. My pilgrimage, as as the word you've used in your subtitle, is uh, maybe not that strange. But f- when I went to college, I, I found my way into a Calvinistic type Baptist church, and uh, and as my Reformed convictions started to grow and grow, I realized that the the place I was attending wasn't really Reformed, even though I initially thought it was. Um, but uh, eventually, coming to Westminster, I was able to find myself into an Orthodox Presbyterian church. And when I arrived, it was it was kind of an adjustment. And uh, trying to parse out what was Reformed and what were just the particular intricacies of that congregation was kind of difficult. So this book uh, looks to be a help to those people who have just found their way into re- a Reformed church. Uh, could you just give us a background as to what your intentions were and what your hopes for this book are? Sure. Well, I didn't grow up Reformed. I uh, explained that a little bit in the book at the beginning. I was uh, born and raised and baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, at some point my father was converted in the Calvary Chapel, and so I remember uh, as a very young boy going to Sunday school uh, in Calvary Chapel, and then over the course of time uh, was uh, converted in a four-square church when I was about 17 and a half or so, uh, and then from there went on to play basketball in college uh, at, a, at a small Christian college that was affiliated with the Assemblies of God. And while I was there, uh, very disillusioned and very um, uh, curious about uh, what else was out there, because I had been you know, basically in my sort of cognitive uh, upbringing, uh, charismatic Pentecostal. And so I started to search and look and wonder and try to find something else. I had, in the course of that time, become a youth pastor in a non-denominational charismatic church. And uh, through all this, uh, I, in the, in the providence of God, so wonderfully, was introduced to the Reformed faith through a professor <clears throat> of mine. And so my own story uh, is pretty similar to a lot of people's stories yeah. in our time, you know, who are, who are learning about the Reformation and um, I had mentioned at the Ligonier Conference this past weekend, you know, this, it's one of the wonderful things about, you know, the White Horse Sin and, uh, you know, Table Talk, Renewing Your Mind, Ligonier, and all the ministries that are out there is that so many people are coming to the Reformation and uh, learning about it through various means, sometimes not the most obvious means, but uh, the book is meant to then uh, explain to the people basically like me and like us who didn't grow up Reformed, who are interested, who are curious, um, to, to show them, you know, what is our history, what are some of the, the, the core principles of our theology, how is our worship different, you know, how do we live our Christian life out, uh, and then I end the book up with some, you know, pretty common questions and answers that I've been asked over the years, uh, and then also give some brief uh, bibliography uh, to point people, you know, in, in the right direction towards some more uh, resources. Mm-hmm. Well, let's speak a little bit about that in terms of our roots, and uh, your your second chapter also speaks about confessions. Uh, what is the Reformed view of, of tradition and history? Obviously, you growing up in the Roman Catholic Church are familiar, at least to some extent, of a different view of tradition and, and uh, church history, but how are we as Reformed people to understand the role of uh, the developments within the Church uh, through time? Sure, that's a great question. One of the uh, basic principles of our faith, of course, is as Reformed, 
uh, Christians is that we believe ourselves to be Christians. We believe ourselves to be, uh, as uh, the Reformers of themselves, as Catholics, as the real Catholics, uh, merely just Reformed. Uh, not uh, a restoration, per se, but, uh, a, but a reformation of the existing Church. And mm-hmm. so we see ourselves in continuity with uh, the ancient Church. Uh, we can look to Israel, we can look to the, the Apostles, we look to the early councils and the early fathers and the, the core essential doctrines of the Trinity and Christ. And we latch onto those. Those are ours. Those are our guys. Um, those are our fathers. And you know, we believe uh, those basic doctrines with them. I think for a lot of people that's kind of shocking and kind of different. They're not used to thinking of themselves as you know early Christians. Uh, they they kind of view you know Jesus died and the apostles were good guys and then there's basically a, a, a drop off a cliff at some point after yeah. the year one hundred, and uh, these good guys didn't come back until the, the time of Martin Luther. So there's this great gap, you know. Uh, oftentimes, of course, the medieval church described as the Dark Ages. So, uh, But we see that there is a great continuity. Uh, obviously, there are lots of ups and downs, more downs and ups at times. But uh, we, we see ourselves as historically rooted Christians. Mm. That's important. And we are also a confessing church, and we we don't see ourselves as, as like you said, a, a you know, beginning within the Reformation or even later. Uh, and that's something that's so different from modern evangelicalism. Uh, pe- there seems to be an aversion uh, to confessions. And, and as it's been said before, everyone has a confession. Some people just choose not to tell you what it is. Right. And, you know, it's interesting, Danny, I had this conversation as I recommended your book um, to some people on Sunday at our church um, who were asking basically about the doctrine we hold to, the Westminster Standards, Westminster Confession of Faith. And and I, I've learned if I just tell them, if you go to a community church and on their website they have a statement of faith, what do we believe? That is a confession of faith. And ours is just rooted in you know church history. Um, it was a statement of what Protestants believed. And there's really no difference, but a lot of the people that react most to quote-unquote, confessional churches post their confession under what they believe on their website and don't even realize they're doing the same thing. Yeah, that's right. And uh, like I've I've recounted so many times, more more times than I can remember, but everyone believes the Bible. And the question is, what does the Bible teach? And what does any given church, any given pastor, uh, or just your average professing believer? Every Christian has some some belief system, some credo, they have some confession, they have uh, something that they are going to say about, you know, well, what do you believe the Bible's about? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? What's going to happen at the end? Of course, people have uh, strong opinions about that these days. So everyone has a confession, everyone has a creed, everyone believes something. Uh, the question that we want to uh, bring out uh, is really just to be honest about it and to say, you know, well, let's lay our cards on the table and let's compare it to Scripture. Mm-hmm. And that's really the the important role or function of the confession. It is a standard, uh, but it's an agreed-upon standard, and we agree upon it because we think it faithfully represents the system of doctrine taught in Scripture. And that leads me to uh, you know your third chapter, which is that of Scripture, the final authority. And we all, as Christians, believe in the truth of Scripture. At least, I, I would say you you would you would have to at some level, um, but. 
what is the role of scripture in relation to confessions? And, uh, you know, how do we, how do we go about dealing with those who don't agree with our confession? Sure. Um, just as a basic sort of starting point to make a good distinction would be that the scripture has a, a, a magisterial authority and, uh, our confessions are, have sort of ministerial authority and, uh, or to put another way, our confessions are uh, derived from Scripture, and the, the authority and the and the belief system and um, you know the the rightness of our creeds and confessions uh, are only so if they're uh, pulled from Scripture. And so that's the place that I've always started with with people is to say you know, Scripture is our ultimate uh, highest court of appeal. It's our final authority. It's the Word of God. And, uh, but again, like I recount in the book, a funny little story, I once heard a, a good pious Dutchman uh, tell me when he was discussing this issue with uh, uh, somebody that he knew, and the person was a Baptist, and he asked his Baptist friend, well, what do you believe? And he says, well, I just believe the Bible. And then uh, this Dutchman says, well, the Bible's a really big book. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, a, a confession is, is a way of saying, yeah, the Bible's a, a large book, and there's a lot to say. Well, how do we summarize the core of the Bible in a way that we can understand in our own time and place. And so, uh, you know, our creeds and confessions then uh, have that role. They're, yeah. they're statements, they're, they're summaries. It's a way for us to give people uh, something to say, here's an entry into what the Bible's all about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Danny, a good portion of your book is taken up with what we call um, the Order Salutis, the benefits of salvation, the application of the salvation we have in Christ. Um, and even definitions about <clears throat> the doctrines of grace, what you know we call the five points of Calvinism. You know, I for one am very thankful that Calvinism is taking root in um, American churches more. It seems in the last maybe fifteen years, I don't know, maybe even the last ten years with the new Calvinist movement. Um, this is foundational in one sense to the Reformed faith, right? And this is why you spend so much time with this in your book. Yeah, uh, I actually read an article this morning online. Uh, the Christian Science Monitor has a uh, an oh. art, a five-page article on Mark Dever's I church. I saw that. It's sort of a follow-up to the Time Magazine, you know, the New Calvinism uh, article that was uh, last year. And uh, but yeah, and basically, uh, you know, we're seeing a, a great uh, interest in our faith, and uh, which is very exciting and. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we do have to define ourselves. We have to we have to explain ourselves to people um, that you know there are these basic doctrines that you know people with the the title Calvinist believe, and, and these are foundational: uh, the sovereignty of God, the the freeness of grace, uh, faith as a gift, and receiving Christ and Him alone. These are the really the, the core of our salvation. But at the same time, I, I try to explain a little bit in the book. Um, that the Reformed faith is a much bigger uh, thing than just uh, predestination. Right. You know, that's, that's normally how people come around, you know, come start coming into our churches is, you know, they're sort of shocked to their core about the sovereignty of God, and they yeah. see that, and they get very excited about it. Um, that's what happened to me. I, and yeah, then, yeah. Then you I end mean, up in a, you know, often sometimes people end up going to Calvinistic Baptist churches, and they sometimes will call themselves reformed, but reformed only applies to the soteriology. Sure, what you're yeah, mentioning here is much broader than simply soteriology, although soteriology is a crucial, 
crucial aspect to being reformed. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, the, the, the doctrines of grace and, you know, our belief in the sovereignty of God and salvation, uh, those, as I explain to people, those are, those are essential and those are uh, vital and are foundational. But those, those doctrines have to lead us somewhere. Yeah. And they don't just, you know, we shouldn't just stop there. And, you know, they should lead us into, well, how do we worship? And then that brings up a whole host of issues. You know, how should we live right. our life? Right. Obviously that's, you know, major issues, you know, with the law of God and its relevance and so forth. So, Really, know, the, the authority of the Bible over in every sphere, not just in salvation. Yeah, that's right. Hmm. Now, you mentioned in here, and I thought it was interesting, you mentioned that you were a cessationist. I'm a cessationist. Um, I, I can't speak for Camden, but I assume oh, yeah. he is. Oh, yeah. Come on, man. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm assuming. I don't think we've had. Well, I guess we have had We just talked to Dr. Gaffin about Pentecost. But um, in the New Calvinist movement, you know, Mark Driscoll made that statement not too terribly long ago, the four reasons why it was successful. And one of those was, we believe in the continuation of the gifts. Um, I think it's interesting. I mean, you're a pretty young guy. How old are you, if you don't mind my asking? <laughs> since, I, since I just did. <laughs> How old are you? 35. 35. He's I'm a young guy. 33. Camden's pretty young. 29. You know, 29. So, But my point is, um, I think there's this sense where people think anybody that's young and Calvinistic believes in the continuation of the gifts. And you make a point in this book to talk about cessationism. Could you just very briefly tell us why that's important, why you feel that's important, and why you included that? Yeah. Um, one way to kind of get into that was uh, this past Saturday, I gave a little breakout session at Ligonier here in West, on the West Coast on my book, and I had kind of recounted my story, and then afterwards, there were two uh, men who were going into the ministry in the Assemblies of God at Ligonier who came up to me and uh, were sort of, they were shocked, but they were also excited. And basically their question was, what do I do? You know, I, I, I'm in the Assemblies of God, I'm moving towards the ministry, but everything I hear from, you know, you reform guys, I absolutely love. How do I bring, how do I bring these two systems together, or can, I, or can I? And my answer to them was, uh, well, first of all, you know, these are, you know, opposing sort of systems of theology. Uh, but that being said, you know, I kind of jokingly said to the guy, we believe in the Holy Spirit too, right? <laughs> And uh, I, had, I had pointed him in the direction of reading John Owen, reading volumes three and four in his works on the Holy Spirit, uh, to, to show him that we, ha- we believe in the Holy Spirit. And, um, you know, to, to hear the language of, you know, not believing in the continuation of the gifts, well, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe he continues to gift the Church. Absolutely. I believe uh, he continues to work and to move and to, and to revive and to save. Uh, Obviously, the question, you know, really the question is, of course, you know, certain gifts, do they continue or not? Um, but, you know, to kind of bring that to the, to the main issue is our belief in Scripture as God's final revelation. He's spoken to us in His Son. Hebrews 1 says, you know, everything that we need, we have in His Word. It's a sufficient Word. Uh, obviously, there were more books written by the Apostles than are in the New Testament, but all the books that we have are the books that God intended, and... Uh, they tell us what we need to know to be saved and how we have to live. So, uh, and the, the sufficiency and the finality of Christ and his work, and 
the work of the Holy Spirit in uh, giving us every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. And First uh, Corinthians 12, we've been baptized into Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit, and we have his fullness of gifts in Christ. And, uh, you know, one of the dangers of trying to wed together Reformed soteriology with charismatic, mm-hmm. even Pentecostal uh, pneumatology in ecclesiology and, and worship and so forth, is that it does begin to, at least it did for me, was to bring doubts as to Scripture's you know, uniqueness. And uh, really what it comes down to is the issue of assurance. And, you know, can I be assured that I belong to Christ, body, soul, life, and in death? Um, I don't have these particular gifts that these guys over here have. If I don't have those, do I belong? And have I received Christ? Have I been united to him? Have I received his blessing? Do I have the Spirit? And so, to me, it really is a pastoral issue uh, at the end of the day, as much as a theological issue, a pastoral issue of assurance. Yeah. And also, of course, that theological aspect to uh, God's continued revelation, and, and you get into canonical issues as well. Is, is the canon closed if the if the gift of prophecy is still uh, open and available and, and gift given to the church today? So there's a lot involved there. Um, but would you say, uh, this this gets at a particular issue on the word reformed, would you say cessationism is an, a necessary aspect to being reformed? Or how would you go about this type of issue with understanding reformed dumb? <laughs> sure. I, I guess I would say that, you know, what we would call cessationism is, you know, the, the logical conclusion of our, of our doctrinal system. Uh, but again, that, that being said, I mean, I, I don't want to say that and sound like, uh, you know, an ostrich with my head in the sand, and sure. I don't want to sound like a person that just wants to quench the spirit and be this mean, you know, mean guy. You know, what we, uh, John Owen, in volumes three and four, roughly 1,200 pages in, you know, dinky little print, you know, eight-point font, single-spaced. Uh, and I read an article online uh, recently from an Assemblies of God pastor who was basically expressing his amazement at John Owen. He said, no one has eclipsed John Owen in the last 400 years, not even us, speaking of the Assemblies of God. And he was, rec- he was recommending AG pastors to read Owen hmm. on the Holy Spirit. Great. So, uh, yeah, our, our understanding of the, of, the, of the gifts, you know, the, the great sign gifts, you know, tongues and... Uh, you know, miracles and so forth, as ceased, are not to quench the Spirit, but to, but to say that they have served their role. Uh, the role was to authenticate the Apostles' ministry, and uh, by that to authenticate the Word, and to, uh, to bring the assurance that Christ was the Messiah. Uh, but, you know, to put it crassly, you know, we don't need those miracles anymore, in the sense that we have the Word, and we have the Spirit who ministers that Word to us uh, in a very powerful way. And so... Right. But how do we, how do we go about uh, defining the word reformed? Because different people will will disagree on this issue, and I I, I understand you have uh, you know the core and central teachings to reformed churches here, and I agree with them. Uh, but but we have different cases, for instance, with reformed Baptists, which are are credo Baptists, yet on most all other issues they line right up with with what is presented here in your book. Um, this issue of people being reformed, but but uh, continuationists. I mean, are we should we look at 
the word reformed is more of a center bounded thing or more of a, a I, I guess I'm trying to work through this issue. Um, what do we do about that when somebody says they're reformed, yet they don't hold to every single line item that we find in the Westminster Confession of Faith or that we find in the three forms of unity, etc.? Yeah, that's a question that, uh, you know, we deal with a lot out here, you know, in church planting and people coming and going and, you know, trying to figure out what it all is about. Uh, to define Reformed, obviously, we would look at it as being defined by our confessions. And, yeah. um, you know, that's sort of the historical argument that these confessions are the, the things that uh, summarized and expressed the, the beliefs of various national and international churches. And, you know, to, what to do, though, with a person, you know, who is a schematic still, or what to do with a person that, uh, you know, might be Reformed Baptist, or what about a person who's a dispensationalist, you know, and, and the list goes on. Well, as a pastor, I mean, the answer, of course, is, is patience and uh, catechesis and teaching them and, you know, really trying to, to, to bring them along to maturity. You know, I don't really see any other option. I mean, we, we, mm-hmm. we, we want to be strong in our confessions. We want to stand for what they believe and, and for what we believe them uh, to say. Uh, but at the same time, we do have to realize that, you know, there's a lot of confusion and there all, are all kinds of people that are coming around and they're coming more and more closer to the Reformation. And so to be patient and loving and, and hospitable, uh, pastoral, welcoming as the church, you know, uh, as, as the book is uh, entitled, to, to draw them in with these sort of core essential doctrines of grace, but to then sh- begin to help them grow into maturity to uh, find that unity that we have uh, in the in the fullness of our faith. Mm, that's great, right, Danny? I I was um, fascinated to see that you included under justification, and it's not a surprise to me in one sense because I I believe that the Westminster Confession teaches us as well. But you include a short section on the active obedience of Christ, His um, law keeping, His fulfilling the the demands of the law perfectly for us as our representative. That's part of what we get imputed to us um, together with his, you know, passive obedience, his death on the cross, the forgiveness of sins, and the perfect record that we get from his law keeping. And that's sort of been an in-house debate in some way in the modern, even not just Calvinistic churches, but even Reformed churches, some of the um, some of some very good guys actually pointing out that there were, you know, the three dissenting men at yeah. Westminster Assembly, Gattaker, Twist, and I forget if it was um, Vines, um, maybe Richard Vines, mm-hmm. uh, who didn't like the idea of active imputed righteousness being part of the imputed righteousness to us. But you point out, you you point out that that you actually believe that is taught in the Westminster Confession when it talks about uh, in, in uh, I think larger Catechism question sixty one speaking of Christ's perfect satisfaction, righteousness and holiness becoming ours, and in question 48, talking about um, uh, Jesus and his humiliation, subjecting himself to the law that he perfectly fulfilled. Um, And then elsewhere, I think it talks about the whole obedience of Christ being ours in justification. How fundamental do you believe that is to being reformed? Well, personally, I I would see it as essential, and uh, the, the reason for that would be, you know, the common slogan that at least I remember hearing in uh, Sunday school and also when I was youth pastoring, it was sort of a, uh, an idea that was thrown around, you know, justification is 
just as if I had never sinned, and which is which is a true statement, but it's only half of the truth, because if we believe justification merely to be forgiveness, and merely based upon the what we call passive obedience, the death of Christ, the cross, uh, we're we're forgiven, which is a which is a, obviously a blessing which you know we we can't underestimate, but. What does that mean? You know, where does that place us? That that sort of, as I like to tell people, it puts us back in the garden, and it puts us right. in a place where you know we're sort of between that fork in the road all over again. And what's going to happen to us? Right, right, back uh, where Adam was in the covenant of works. Yeah, and so you know, to to embrace and to wholly you know believe and to proclaim the act of obedience uh, is not to be you know a scholastic or not to divide Christ's work into these little nice nice little constituent parts. But it's to emphasize that justification is also something positive that God actually gives to us, which is the righteousness of Christ. And without that, uh, you know, there is no hope without that. We, we are put back in a sort of a, a neutral tabula rasa state where it's sort of up to us, and we have to constantly come back to, you know, forgiveness and so forth, and we're always working it out. But uh, it is essential. It, it's, it's at the heart of Christ's work. He comes... Uh, to do thy will, O God, as the psalmist says. And uh, obviously his will includes everything he did, uh, but certainly that would include his obedience to the law and putting himself under that law. Uh, He's baptized by John the Baptist. For what reason? To fulfill righteousness. And so his whole ministry is characterized uh, by uh, an obedient life in thoughts and words and in deeds. And so, uh, again, as a pastor, it just, it comes down to, as a preacher and as a pastor, assurance. And it comes down to the issue of, what am I going to offer to people? What am I going to say right. to them when they struggle? What am I going to right. say to people who are you know, so conscious of their sins? What about an unbeliever who comes and just can't imagine that it can be this good? So it comes down to you know, the work of Christ, but then how do we apply that to people? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, I just wanted to ask one more follow-up. With regard to some of the discussion about... Um, multiple benefits that come to us in Christ. Um, and I know this is a huge discussion. I don't want to open this up too much, but um, do you believe that justification has an impact on our sanctification? You move in your chapters from justification to sanctification. I'm not asking if you believe everything flows from justification, because I know that's another discussion, but do you believe that it has an impact on our sanctification, our progress in holiness? Yeah. Um Basically, how can it not? I mean, sure. we, we come to embrace, you know, Christ and come to realize, of course, you know, as we mature, what that, what that means in its fullness, you know, and the wonderful blessing of being forgiven, you know, being stripped of our self-righteousness and at the same time being given Christ's righteousness. How can we not uh, respond and uh, live a life of thankfulness and godliness and gratitude. Not that we're again, not that we're trying to earn, not that we, not that we can ever in any way whatsoever repay God, but we're totally uh, in awe and in wonder that uh, He would ever do this to us. Um, and so that, yeah, that does, as you mentioned, it does flow into sanctification. Of course, it's it's the it's the the ground of what brings us uh, into a life of holiness, but just. Uh, experientially and uh, even psychologically speaking, to to understand the wonder of justification and Christ and His righteousness uh, imputed to me by faith alone uh, can do nothing other than 
lead us to lay our lives down as living sacrifices. Right. And Calvin, Calvin will say uh, something to that effect as well, that um, our justification, having our having our debts paid and having his righteousness, understanding that the score is settled between us and, and him is, uh, is the motivation and the, the driving factor in allowing us to go on and live holy lives. Now, within this discussion, of course, Nick, you know, you're alluding to other things too. There are other views of, of sanctification that see a definitive aspect to it. That's, that's beside the point in this particular question, but, um, yeah, absolutely. To the progressive side, to the doing of good works, to the living out of a holy life. Yeah, absolutely. Justification has a lot to do, everything to do with doing, with living in that way. Right. Now, Danny, I I thought it was great that you included a chapter on the marks of the church in this book, um, because we've gone going through our first new members class at our church plant. And most of the people are not reform. Most have not been in reform churches. Some have been in um, sort of John MacArthur type Bible churches, for which I'm very, very thankful. They've they've gotten good teaching. Um, But one thing, as we've gone into the marks of the church and in my studying, you find some diversity, but it does seem like the three marks are the pure preaching of the word and the gospel, uh, the administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. Um, could you talk to our listeners a little bit about those? I know church discipline has been something just in the last couple of years that churches have again sort of been rediscovering. And I, I found, especially with that one, with that mark of, the, of a true church, that a lot of the people in, in our church plan have said, you know, that makes so much sense to us. We've never heard that before. We went to big churches and, you know, the music minister was living in adultery. And I mean, I've actually had people tell me this and, and they're saying, yeah, that makes sense that, that that ruins the church if you don't discipline. Could you talk about why these three are the primary three marks as you see it of a reformed church and of a true church? Sure. Um, I think it was uh, Francis Turton who described uh, the Word as really the the one great mark, mm. and you know from that these other marks are sort of applications. But mm. um, you know, and of course, there's a great debate, you know, between uh, or at least there was early on in the Reformation. You know, what were the marks? Were there two marks? Were there three marks? And of course, the Lutherans have two marks, and we uh, over time developed the the idea of three marks. Um, Calvin talks about uh, discipline being the fruit of the first two marks, which I which I agree with. That if the gospel is being proclaimed purely justification, uh, if uh, if the sacraments, the baptism, and the Lord's supper are being administered purely, uh, we have to discipline. Meaning, we have to have oversight and shepherding of our people, and uh, we have to oversee this not not merely the externals of the church, but the spiritual lives of our people. Uh, Hebrews 13 exhorts Christians to uh, submit to their, to their leaders because they look out for their souls. And uh, so, yeah, it's one of those issues, again, uh, as a pastor, I, what I hear from people who come to our church, they hear the gospel, they hear the preaching, they come to catechism classes, they you know, do new members classes, they're reading through books and so forth. Uh, what I hear is just so much thankfulness that a church actually cares about the lives of its members. Um, of, of course, it can go you know to an extreme where you know every little jot and tittle is sort of uh, tyrannically overseen. But people are so thankful that they come from a large church, 
or even a small church where they didn't really have much to do with the pastor, or maybe they didn't have uh, elders in his church, and now has a pastor that actually knows their name, uh, a pastor that knows where they live, um, a pastor that actually invites them to his house for lunch, and yeah. elders that right, right. visit and, and talk to them on Sundays, and, and members mm-hmm. that are conscious of the fact that you know we're, we are brothers and sisters, we're all in it together, and... Uh, so discipline really, you know, has a negative connotation, of course, in our time and place. But discipline is really, to put it in a more positive uh, light, it's shepherding, it's guidance, yep. yeah, you know, direct, direction, uh, it's love put out, put out in a more sort of official way. And the way the way Turretin frames it is an interesting perspective because other other people have said, and I think it's true that discipline starts with the preaching of the word, uh, and, and that's the positive aspect to it as the word is preached. And applied to us, you know that that disciplines us. So we we do have this negative connotation of discipline. It's not always punishment, but it's a positive right. shepherding, encouraging. Uh, it's a growth. Like any athlete has to discipline his body in order to to be a good athlete. As Christians, we need to discipline ourselves in order to live holy lives and to to live to be God honoring in that. And discipline is important um, and so crucial to being a healthy church. It's an exercise of the keys of the kingdom. Yep, that's right. So just as a real quick follow-up, um, how important, and I know the Dutch Reformed do make a bigger deal. I went to Greenville Seminary, and my professors made a big deal about home visitations. Um, I'd just like to know your thoughts personally about how, um, how, let me think how to put this, how important and how structured home visitations, the pastor visiting his people need to be? Because I know some men have written books about you need to ask these diagnostic questions and it, it becomes oh, very yeah. sort of formulated and, and that's the only way you're doing a home visitation. What thoughts do you have about that? Yeah, well, uh, hi, uh, doing house visitation or uh, heist bazook as the Dutch would call it. I, I'm not Dutch, so uh, you, can, you can forgive me for my Dutch pronunciation. <laughs> but, uh, We're not going to correct you because we don't know. We don't know either, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> vital to the life of the church in a reformed church in a, in a church like my own that has roots in the in the Dutch Reformation um, actually uh, in in Geneva in Calvin Geneva the uh, min- the members of the church of the various parishes were visited four times a year before the Lord's Supper was administered which was four times a year um, and it was a way of overseeing and a way of catechizing and instructing and, and overseeing people's lives and so forth uh, but in terms of the practical aspects of it, you know, in our churches, in the URC, generally speaking, elders and sometimes ministers visit every individual or family uh, once a year in an official capacity. Um, and there are variations on how that's done. And, you know, some churches, uh, you know, basically for one year out, they will schedule, you know, dates and times and places, and they'll have a very structured sort of uh, passage of Scripture uh, with certain questions that are going to be asked of everybody. In our church, we found that uh, being in a pretty informal culture here, that you know, doing the visit and having membership and so forth is a big deal uh, to people. And in the visit, to be a little more informal, um, it's not just a chit-chat, but you know, we, we want to spend time with people. We want to get to know them. Um, you know, we, we do ask various sort of, general questions of everybody, 
Uh, we do a lot of encouraging people to attend church, you know, more faithfully, especially, you know, in our church we have an evening service. We want our members to sanctify the Lord's Day. and um, But we have, you know, a, a fair amount of latitude on that. Uh, and, uh, you know, just as a pastor and with my people, you know, we know each other very well. And so, you know, we can ask very, uh, you know, personal pointed questions, which I think is essential. But, you know, there are books, there are articles that have, you know, very structured ways of going about it um, that might be helpful to some churches and some pastors as they maybe start doing it for the first time to get them in the habit of a visit and, you know, what kinds of questions to ask. Right. But I've just found as a pastor and my own members, I think, have found that uh, the, the benefits really come in, in the spending time together and fellowship and, you know, being asked questions from their pastor who cares for them and not necessarily just, you know, because we have to ask them on a checklist. Mm-hmm. Danny, can I real quick shift um, to, in your book, you talk about word and worship, and you talk about the primacy of worship in a Reformed church. And I'm wondering, and I'm deviating a little bit from the content of your book, though I'm playing off it, um, how much, um, what, what sort of priority should worship have in the life of a Reformed church in relationship to evangelism? This is a question I've really wrestled with myself. Hmm. I know many Reformed people say worship is primary, evangelism secondary, but then a lot of evangelicals who I think have written good things have made the point, well, we're going to worship for all eternity, and you can only witness to Christ here and now, and that's one major reason, if not the major reason, the church is still on earth. Um, I'm wondering what you think for the Reformed Church, the emphasis it's had, what it should have in regard to the relationship between worship and witness. Sure. Uh, that's a good question. Um, Joel Beakey has a good little booklet on Puritan, Puritan evangelism, where he shows in the Puritans that they believed preaching was evangelism, mm. uh, which I would agree with, that uh, the minister is, as Paul tells Timothy, uh, one to do the work of an evangelist. And so... Uh, to me, it is a false dichotomy, and I, and I, I understand why there is a, a distinction that churches make and people have made, uh, given all the you know revivalism and seeker sensitivity and so forth of so many churches. You know, so I understand the reaction to that to say that you know worship is for the covenant community and evangelism is something that's other than that. Um, but I, but I think really it, it is an overreaction and it's a false dichotomy because. Uh, Paul talks about in Corinthians where unbelievers come in and they fall on their faces, and uh, in the, right, in the right. context of that worship. And so, uh, my sermons have a very strong, uh, I, I guess, for lack of a better term, evangelistic thrust to them. I I try to every Sunday morning never let a sermon go without calling unbelievers to repent and believe, mm. uh, and also, of course, uh, calling my own members to repent and believe. Right, but. Right. Uh, I just, if, if we preach the gospel, if we preach Christ, if we, if we invite people to come to him, if we give the offer the gospel, if we explain people the, the, the nature of sin, the necessity of, of a Savior, and, you know, how we come to that Savior, if we're doing that on a regular basis, um, we are being faithful, I think, as pastors to shepherd our members as well as to... Uh, evangelize the lost. And I also think one of the benefits of that is it shows our members that 
just as a very basic benefit is that they can invite unbelieving friends to our church. I, uh, yeah, I agree completely. I well, actually wrestled with this years ago because I, I hold the same view you do. I think pretty much exactly as you've just put it um, with regard to those two things. And I went to a church years ago, and I think there is an error in some Reformed churches where they think, well, wor- worship's for believers, and it is for believers, but the passage you quoted in 1 Corinthians 14 is left out. And then I used to actually hesitate to bring unbelieving coworkers when I worked at this restaurant to church because I knew they weren't going to hear the gospel. Because a lot of times, now that begs the question, do believers need the gospel too in the life of sanctification and and in, in everything that we teach? All the commands of Christ need to be accompanied by the gospel. But I really appreciate that because I want our people at New Covenant to really be able to say, yes, we know if we're going to bring our coworkers that our pastor is going to call them to Jesus Christ. Um, So I appreciate that. Hmm. Yeah, uh, just to give an example, yesterday I preached in the morning on Leviticus 10, 1 through 7, Nadab and Abihu, uh, not the most outwardly evangelistic text in the Bible, but uh, basically I... (laughs) What would Shailene have to say about this, right, Nick? You'll get (laughs) consumed with fire, I don't know. You said God roasted them. Oh, God roasted him. He's a rapper in the Philadelphia area who sings Reformed-type uh. lyrics. And he <laughs> had, that was one of his lyrics on that passage. You know, here, here's a passage that is about the nature and the seriousness of true worship of the, of the true God. But what better passage to preach the gospel, uh, to preach the law, to show people, as I hope I did faithfully, uh, to, to explain to unbelievers, here's what happens, you know, when you come before God. Uh, either God is going to accept you on the basis of some, some, something else being consumed, right? Christ, mm. or you are. And, uh, That's great. You know, it's, it's just one of, one of those things where we don't have to twist the Bible, you know, to kind of fit in our little evangelistic altar call. I think as, as we preach the Bible and we preach the narratives and the epistles and the whole counsel of God, uh, even in our tradition, you know, preaching catechism sermons, mm-hmm. that we are we are always preaching uh, about sin and salvation and service. We're always preaching these basic themes, and so to me, it's just natural uh, to uh, to bring out, you know, in a sermon on worship, uh, there are unbelievers, you know, probably sitting there, and what I'm saying doesn't make any. It, what I'm saying to them isn't relevant in the sense that they're not believers. Uh, and, to, and to then bring them to the, hopefully, to bring them to the realization that they need to be worshiping this God. And how can they do that? And what's the method that God has prescribed and so forth? So, to me, all preaching should be gospel-centered, evangelistic, uh, you know, and uh, that, that would include even, as Nick mentioned, you know, our own members need to hear the gospel. Yeah. Now, let's speak a little bit about the regulative principle of worship. I imagine one of the first things somebody might notice when they come to a Reformed church is a difference of style and a difference of philosophy in terms of how they go about worshiping in the service. Uh, what is the regulative principle? How important is it, and uh, why is it a Reformed view? Well, uh, I would hope in a, in a good Reformed church, it's the first Thing that the average person sees is mm-hmm. just how different you know this church looks uh, and feels. You know, not that we not that we want them to evaluate worship on feelings and looks, but it really is. You know, we, and we have to be conscious as pastors that people walk into a reformed church and it is a strange world. It's a, it's a different world. 
Um, and they see that from what we do. And uh, so the regular principle, of course, is that we, we do worship God according to his word, and we do it in the way that he's prescribed uh, for us to do so. Um, and, uh, you know, and to explain that to people on a regular basis, you know, I, I try to, you know, provide little pamphlets in our, for our church and during, even during the, the course of a worship service to at different times and different services point out different parts of what we're doing. And, um, but it is essential because, again, going back to the idea of Scripture and the Scripture principle, uh, of uh, sola scriptura and the su- sufficiency, our worship is really an outworking of our of our theology. And uh, if we believe Scripture is sufficient, that would include worship. Uh, if we believe God is uh, a sovereign God, if we believe that we're sinners, if we believe that His grace is freely offered and it's received by faith alone, uh, all these things really are played out and are expressed in our liturgy, in our worship, and. Uh, yeah. Me, it's it, sure for, for for the average person, it is a stumbling block. You know, it's cold, it's lifeless, it's boring. But really, in the context of our worship, this is a great time to point out to people uh, the joy of salvation and to point them out to uh, point point them to the, the holiness of God. And um, really, you know, leading worship week in and week out is sort of the greatest sermon illustration that you have because. You can point people to various aspects of our theology and our, and our doctrine and uh, and our beliefs uh, throughout what we're doing. Um, so all that to say that the RPW, the regular principle, is basically Reformed theology put into practice. Mm-hmm. Danny, you don't include in your book anything really about eschatology, um, unless I missed it, but um, I'm wondering what you think as a pastor of a Reformed church about um, the 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 necessity of teaching your people about the end times for those of those listening who don't know what the word eschatology means the the last things things of um, the end before Christ comes and when Christ comes um, you know with with a strong premillennial dispensational bent in most American evangelical churches. Um, and and the reform world being divided up through historic pre-mill, mill and post-mill. I've heard quite a lot of post-millennial um, ministers in Reformed churches be very strong and outspoken, but I find that most amillennial ministers, and, and I would include myself in this one, are more shy, are more <laughs> cautious, are more cautious about speaking about it. Um, how How much emphasis do you think eschatology should get? I mean, obviously, as you preach the Bible, you have to mention it, but What's your approach? What are your thoughts? I'm just wondering, one reform minister to another. Aren't you, aren't you working on a new Left Behind series, but an amillennial take or something? I am, I am. <laughs> All taken up. All taken away at the same time. Okay. Yeah, that, uh, that series would be like, instead of seven volumes, but like seven pages probably, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's mostly church history. <laughs> yeah, well, the issue of uh, eschatology, you know, as, a, as an amillennial uh, person myself, it is one of those things where, yeah, you feel kind of shy. Um, but I guess what I would want to, you know, make clear to people is that, at least for me, uh, eschatology is not just, you know, what's going to happen, you know, in the last days. Absolutely. Unquote. Um, I guess what I've seen, like you've mentioned, is yeah, in a premillennial and even maybe a postmillennial context, there is a lot more emphasis upon you know, the end and the, you know, the events surrounding and, 
you know, uh, all, all, the, all these visual and visible, you know, sort of markers in history. I think for a person that would hold to an amillennial eschatology, uh, eschatology would really pervade everything that they say. Yes, um, right. That's right. It, it, even if people don't know, that's what they're getting. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, you know, even the the, the title amillennial is sort of a misnomer. Mm-hmm. I think it was Anthony Hookema who called it uh, inaugurated eschatology or just some other phrase he gave. Mm-hmm. Uh, Venema, one of my URC colleagues, he talked about it as now millennialism. Yeah. But but he's joked around saying that that's not really going to catch on. But uh, that's really our position is that the, the millennium, the reign of Christ uh, is now. And I've, I've really tried to make a point uh, not to overdo it in terms of eschatology, but to make a point that the coming of Christ, the, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, of course, especially was a climactic uh, uh earth-shattering thing. I mean, Hebrews talk, talks about it, right, as him coming at the end of the age. Yes. Right, right, right. So, but he's inaugurated then. It is this new uh, heavenly kingdom that exists now in the midst of the king of the world and so forth. Um, so that, that should affect our, our preaching. Our preaching should be uh, very uh, serious and very imminent in that sense, that, you know, we believe Christ has come. Uh, today's the day of salvation, as Paul would say. Um and it should drive, you know, what we're doing, you know, our worship, as I tell my church often, when we come together for worship, uh, we're worshiping by faith in heaven. What, what we're doing here on earth is, is, is real, and it's happening, but right. faith, we are ascending that heavenly mountain, that heavenly Jerusalem, and we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So right. eschatology really uh, sort of pervades, you know, what we're doing, what we're all about. Uh, but in terms of, you know, the necessity of actually, you know, engaging the various sort of millennial positions and the various, you know, books and so forth, I do think it's important, um, especially to engage the dispensational uh, position, right. given the fact that uh, most evangelicals are going to, whether they're conscious of it or not, hold to some yep. sort of premillennialism. That, that's what they've been spoon-fed from it's investors. You know, because of those the books, you know, the Hal Lindsey and then the, the Left Behind series, it's interesting evangelicalism's uh, fascination with all the events about, you know, who or what is Antichrist, when is it going to happen, all, you know, what nations are going to conspire together in order to form coalitions and all these sorts of things. But to me, I'm with I'm with you, Danny. It's much more fascinating and and just life changing to think about the eschatology that is inaugurated. The fact that I am a new creation, you know, Second Corinthians five seventeen. I have an inner man that has been renewed, uh, you know, and my outer man's wasting away. That's all eschatology. I sit, I, I I reign with Christ. I sit in the heavenly places and worship in my inner man right now, uh, and and that's a present reality that has been uh, accomplished by the once-for-all work of Christ. And so our eschatology, uh, you know, eschatology is much more than simply, you know, events of the last times. And, and in fact, uh, the things that Paul speaks about in Ephesians, First and Second Corinthians, all over Scripture, not just Paul, but all the authors, is, is something I think deserves much more attention and fascination than, than any particular details of symbolism in Revelation, although that is important as well. Yeah, and I, as pastors, I mean, we're certainly not going to, you know, give a a, a new members class uh, a copy of Gerhardus Voss. No, or, no. <laughs> or, uh, you know, uh, Ritterboss on Paul, uh, his theology, but... This stuff I preaches, think, though. You know, you are seated does, yeah, with Christ. Exactly. 
yeah, that we can we can bring those things out in our preaching and and really open people's eyes to the wonder of you know what's happening. Right. Amen. Well, this book uh, is is fantastic. It looks great, uh, and and we would encourage everyone to pick up a copy and uh, pass it along. Uh, you know, buy m- multiple copies and pass them to people, especially newcomers to the Reformed Church. But before we get going, Danny, I wanted to ask you about the other book uh, in defense of the dissent which is uh, dealing with the issue of uh, the descent into hell, the clause that we find in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, before we move on uh, and, and, and say goodbye to this episode, could you tell us a little about that series that you're editing and uh, just a little bit about this book uh, that's from Reformation Heritage? Sure. Uh, Dr. Mark Jones uh, and myself will be uh, putting together a little series of books called Explorations in Reformed Confessional Theology with uh, RHB. And the purpose of that series is to tackle controversial or intramural or maybe even sort of textual variants or difficulties, really, in the creeds, the confessions of the Reformation churches, uh, and, to, and to deal with them in a, in a biblical, a theological, a historical, and also a pastoral way. Um, this first volume of mine, uh, In Defense of the Descent, is, uh, is my attempt to respond to some contemporary critics uh, to the descent clause in the Apostles' Creed, and to show uh, the, his- the history of it and uh, the-, the confessional issue that's, that's involved, and also to give some pastoral uh, implications of why it's so important uh, to keep it uh, in the Creed. And so uh, the series, we-, we hope, is going to be a good one. Uh, we're, uh, we're-, we're hoping to have a-, a volume on the issue of evolution. Oh, uh, great. That- that's been played out in our in our confessional churches, and you know what place that should or shouldn't have, and yes. have some other other uh, topics. You know, one of the topics close to our own churches uh, with the Heidelberg Catechism is question answer number eighty on the mass, describing it as an accursed idolatry. And so, um, hoping to uh, get a, a volume not not written by me, but uh, have someone in mind for that uh, to build that issue. Uh, it's been uh, debated a lot recently in the Christian Reformed Church, uh, which is the denomination from which we come. Uh, but, you know, the, like I said, the, the series is really to give people uh, a very basic guide to some struggles, some issues, some difficulties in our confessions in a way that uh, the average person can read and benefit and hopefully come to some resolution. Mm. Sounds great. It does sound uh, great. Yeah, and that, you know, that, that first volume, In Defense of Descent, uh, that should be out with RHB. Uh, it's, being, it's, on the, it's online now, uh, uh, available for pre-order. But it'll be in print, I believe, sometime late April, early May. Mm. Danny, just out of interest, has anybody else written on that in the last century on that exact topic that you came uh, across in any of your studies? Besides, besides critics uh, who are advocating, you know, the the, the removal of it. Right, uh, right. Not, and there's not been but much actually, written in in one particular book. You know, there are. There are uh, things that I've drawn from other other works, um, everything from you know Reformed Orthodoxy all the way to uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, now Pope uh, Benedict. <laughs> huh. Well, that's a much needed book. I'm really thankful to hear that you wrote that, and yeah. you and Mark are doing that because all those subjects you've mentioned, really, there's not a whole lot written on them as single volumes that I've come across. So that's why mm-hmm. I asked. I think that's great that it is you, a. It is important to deal with. I was uh, before before uh, 
coming out to Westminster, uh, was attending a church where the, the pastor was preaching through the Apostles' Creed and just skipped that one <laughs> and didn't even, <laughs> didn't even mention it, didn't mention well, anything about it, the services. I will, I will say it is kind of an interesting subject because uh, my dad had a professor who was actually president emeritus of Reformed Episcopal whose argument for not saying he descended into hell was if we say a confession or creed for unity and yet different people in the congregation think it means different things. How are we confessing a unified faith? Which I thought was an interesting point. I've put a footnote in our bulletin explaining what what I believe the historic meaning of he descended into hell means so that the people, so yeah. we say it, but they say it with an understanding of what we believe that means. So we say that, you know, with some kind of formed intelligent unity. Yeah, we have the same thing in our bulletin, and uh, there was a, actually a report written that I cite uh, in my little book, uh, and I should mention the books are going to be fairly small, between 80 to 100 pages, so that they're accessible to, to, to anyone, not just you know pastors and theologians, but uh, there's a report written in this Christian Reformed Church uh, about a decade ago, and uh, two of the authors are probably familiar to most listeners, Lyle Birma and also Richard Muller. They wrote a, a response to uh, uh, the Reformed churches in Australia who were seeking to get some advice on whether or not to drop that clause. And uh, basically, uh, Birma and Moller and the other uh, committee members suggested that that very thing, that Reformed churches ought to have uh, some sort of an explanatory footnote, basically to the effect of, you know, this, this has been debated throughout history, but in the Reformed churches, uh, we believe that the dissent clause uh, is understood rightly when we say it means, you know, both that he uh, was under the power of death, as the, the, the Westminster Standards say, and also, as our catechism says, the Heidelberg, uh, that he suffered hell upon the cross. Mm -hmm. so, right. Uh, it's a good special strategy, and it's a way to instruct people, because uh, if you don't have that footnote, or if you don't say something about it, every time you confess that in a worship service, you have a lot of confused looks, and you have a lot of questions after the service. <laughs> right. you know, I've not read your book yet, but just out of interest, have you come across this little work in the works of um, Thomas Brooks where he argues that Christ did not suffer the pains of hell on the cross? No, um, I'm not aware of Thomas book that, Brooks that, wrote... That, and, uh, what, what book is that in? Is that in Precious I, Remedies? No, it's in the works. It's in the Banner of Truth edition in the sixth oh. volume somewhere. And I just happened across it. I disagree with Brooks as much. I mean, he's one of my favorite Puritans, but he actually wrote, it, I think it's like a 60 to 100 page um, treatise on why he didn't believe Christ suffered the pains of hell, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. Well, maybe now you can just excise this part of the interview since I'm not very thorough in my book, apparently. <laughs> no, 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 no. Listen, I don't know anybody that's written on this, so I'm just thankful you wrote it. Oh, I haven't yeah. read your book, so I'm sorry. No, it looks great. Yeah, I have Dr. the little Beakey's, blurbs uh, of it. Dr. Beaky's at his office probably hearing, hearing about this and now trying to pull it from the press. No, <laughs> maybe, maybe, no maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it wasn't Brooks and it was somebody else. Nick's um, making things up, maybe. I'm, yeah, I do that <laughs> from time to time. And no, Danny, I'm really excited about it. He has that spiritual gift. I, <laughs> yes, I do. I have the, I have the gift of embellishment. <laughs> oh, well, thanks so much for joining us today, Danny. I, I appreciate you coming on to speak about this new book and then and then the one on the Descent into Hell. Hopefully we can expand that conversation in the future. Uh, but thanks for coming on and taking the time with us today. Sure, it's been fun. And if I can just briefly, uh, as, a, as a footnote to a footnote, mention uh, that if listeners want to get the book, obviously they can go you know, online anywhere. 
But if you go to Ligonier.org oh. in their in their bookstore, Ligonier's made it uh, made a great deal on the book. Um, they call it Spread the Word Pricing. So for uh-huh. various of, for various amounts of copies, the, the price gets lower. And uh, for churches, and there are several churches that have already bought a hundred or more copies. Uh, for a hundred copies or more, each book is three dollars. Oh wow! Well, that's so, great. I'm gonna yeah. take them up. Reformation Trust. Uh, no, Nick, you can't buy a hundred and resell them. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, uh, Reformation <laughs> Trust publishes books as hardcover. Well, there goes my scheme. Sorry. <laughs> Their first paperback cover uh, book. Uh, the intention was to make it as cheap as possible. Yeah. For, That's great. Right. Not in terms of its content, but in terms of its price. But this is uh, in an excellent. Yeah. I look forward to this, and 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 I'm looking forward to passing this around, and handing this out to friends and family as well. So thank you for writing this and putting it together, because it's going to be a great service uh, to pastors and to the church in general. Thank you. I appreciate it. Now you can uh, you can visit uh, Danny's ch- the church website for uh, Danny's church, Oceanside United Reformed Church at oceansideurc.org. Uh, you can visit Nick online at feedingonchrist.com. And uh, you can see everything we're up to at Reformed Forum. If you visit reformedforum.org, there we have links to all of our other sites and all of our podcasts and promotions, different things that we are up to. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.